Today's scripture reading comes from John chapter 13, verses 18 to 30. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what are you going to do? Do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money back, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks for reading that passage to us, Julia. And hi again to all of you who have gathered together for this worship service. We've got a beloved teacher his closest disciples, and they're sharing an intimate dinner. If that's all we knew about this scene, we might call it a lovely evening, filled with camaraderie and warmth. But something's not right here. One person in that room is thinking betrayal. We don't know if he has a plan yet, but we saw last week in verse 2, that the idea was already in his heart. Maybe it was a seed, but it was sprouting very fast because within hours, he's gonna sell out the man who he calls teacher and Lord. He'll then be arrested, abandoned, and then within a day, he'll be stripped and beaten and executed. It's all so near, so soon, and, and the first domino is about to fall because one disciple will walk out of that room and into darkness and there will be no turning back. But this scene isn't primarily about him. Really, it's about the one whom he called teacher and Lord. This scene is here to show us Jesus Christ. This this piece of the narrative, the larger narrative of the Gospel of John, is here to show us the true identity and the heart of Jesus Christ. John the Apostle, he wrote this firsthand narrative, and throughout this book, he's been showing us different aspects of who Jesus is. Last Sunday, I did my best to unpack the first half of this chapter, where Jesus washes the disciples' feet, which was a culturally inappropriate thing for a teacher to ever do for his disciples. But through that act, he he revealed something about his identity and about his heart. For one, he, he showed them 
that their teacher and their Lord was also a servant. A servant who says, whatever you truly need, I will do for you. In fact, what you need most and you cannot do for yourself, you cannot make yourself spiritually clean and pure, I'll do it for you. And as he washed the disciples' feet, he also showed his heart. He was openly expressing the depth of his love for his friends. In verse 1 of this chapter, what does it say? Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. But one of his friends would reject that love. One of his friends was willing to have his feet washed that night, but he would ultimately reject the spiritual washing that Jesus offered. And Jesus knew this. He says to the group, look at verse 10, and I want to encourage you, if you haven't already, open up to John chapter 13 and follow along there. In verse 10, Jesus says, you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. Later, Jesus is talking about this group of men, and he refers to them as his messengers, his servants, but he makes this one distinction, and it's a chilling distinction. It's the very first sentence that Julia just read for us. Verse 18, Jesus said, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. You hear that? Jesus is saying, I'm telling you that I know who's going to betray me so that when it happens, you'll know who I am and believe that I am he. And so we have to ask, who is he? What is the true identity of Jesus? What is the aspect of his identity that this scene right here is revealing to us? Well, for one, he's someone who is not caught off guard by betrayal. No traitor can sneak up on Jesus. He's not surprised. Look, he says, I know whom I have chosen. And these words are sometimes misunderstood, so, so let's make sure we understand A while back, all the way back in chapter 6, Jesus is talking to the same group of 12 men who were in that room, and he says to them, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet, one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. It's John 6, 70 and 71. Jesus is saying, I chose the 12 of you, and I know that one of you is a devil. One of you is going to commit evil against me. And he's basically communicating the same thing here in John chapter 13, verse 12, when he says, he's saying, "I, I chose the 12 of you, and I know whom I've chosen. In other words, I know each of you 12 very well. In fact, I know you better than you know yourself. Because remember, way back in chapter 6, he already knew some things about Judas that Judas didn't even know about himself. 
Jesus knew that Judas would betray him even before Judas realized. Maybe he hadn't even considered this yet. But he would betray his teacher and Lord, and Jesus knew it. So, again, we're asking the question, who who is this Jesus? What is his true identity that's being revealed to us here? What aspect of his identity is is this scene revealing? Listen, he is the one who knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows us intimately. He he knew the inner temptations that Judas was facing from the very beginning. We don't know what what Judas was thinking early on in the Gospel of John, but Jesus knew. Maybe Judas was struggling with doubt at points. Maybe he was struggling with dissatisfaction. He wasn't satisfied with the way things were going. Maybe he was jealous. He didn't like his his role within this group and was jealous of the status that others had within the group. Maybe he was already struggling with greed. We know that that would become a problem eventually for Judas. We don't know when. We don't know exactly what he was wrestling with, but Jesus knew. Jesus was aware of all the subtle factors that that, that would eventually culminate in this betrayal that would all together somehow motivate Judas to commit this act of treason. Jesus all along knew the sins that Judas was already giving into. He knew that Judas was lying and deceiving him and the rest of the apostles. John tells us back in chapter 12 that Judas was in charge of the group's money and He was skimming, stealing money and lying about it. We know that he was was living in hypocrisy, pretending to care about the poor when he really was using the money that should have been used to care for the poor to feed his own greed. And Jesus knew all this so that even as Jesus was interacting with Judas and the other 11 disciples over the course of three years, Jesus was interacting with them with this profound awareness of who they were, what they wanted, what was going on in their hearts, he knew. And and this means that Jesus knows you intimately. Specifically, he knows what you desire. He knows what you love. He he knows what you hate. He knows all the subtleties and the nuances that make you, you. He knows you better than than you know yourself. How can this be possible? Well, there's only one way. Because there's only one who can know you like that, and it's the God who made you. It's the God who came up with the idea of you. The God who conceived of you long before your parents conceived you. The God who carefully designed and crafted you in his image to find satisfaction in him, in relationship with him. And that's who Jesus is. Jesus is showing us here that he is God. 
He's the one who way back in Exodus called himself the I am. Colossians 2, chapter chapter 2, verse 9 tells us, For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. You look at Jesus Christ, the man, you are seeing all of what it means to be God in him, in the flesh. John, the apostle, agrees with that, no doubt, because the, 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 the third sentence in John's gospel at the very beginning is this. He says, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Jesus created everything. That includes me. That includes you. He made you, and he knows you. So so let's press into that a little bit more. He knows your hurts. He knows your secrets. He knows your anxieties. He knows your failures, past and future. In fact, he knows whether your worst sin is yet to happen. Listen, the the most regrettable thing that you've ever done might still be ahead of you. And, And it might surprise you, but not him. He won't be shocked or caught off guard. The question really is, and we'll come back to this later, what will you do if and when that happens? What do you do now when your own actions or your own words or thoughts, they they surprise you? They disappoint you again? and And you're overwhelmed with regret and you feel guilt and you feel ashamed? What do you do then? That night, Judas walked out into the darkness and he didn't come back. Look at verse 30 of John 13. He immediately went out and it was night. And that detail is there because it describes the scene, but it's also there because it captures the direction of Judas's heart. It captures Judas's trajectory perfectly. He was heading into darkness, heading into the night. Throughout this book, John reminds us repeatedly that Jesus is the light. Chapter 8, chapter 9, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of life. Again and again, he's telling us he is the light. And Judas is in the presence of that light. And he had been for three years. Experiencing the warmth of Jesus. For three years, he was exposed to the brilliant wisdom that only Jesus the light possesses. But in this moment, he went out. And it was night. He left, hell-bent on walking away from the light and into darkness. And, And from that moment on, he's lost. Look, Jesus knows the wrestling that's going on in every human heart. He knows how and why every human has given into sin. It's not hidden from him. And more than that, and here's the even better news, he is not helpless to do something about it. Look at verse 18. Such vivid, powerful, striking words. 
Jesus is quoting the Old Testament Psalm 41 when he says, but the scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. So remember, Christ had been eating with Judas a few minutes earlier. Christ had washed Judas's feet, but Judas will soon lift his foot to kick and to stomp on the one who served him. The irony there, it's thick. But, but Jesus says, this is foretold. This was prophesied. Again, he's quoting Psalm 41, the psalm that was written by David, the ancient king of Israel, who, who himself had been betrayed by a friend. But that psalm is also, according to Jesus, foretelling it. It's pointing ahead to a descendant of King David who would someday come who would be betrayed, but who would also save people from the guilt and the power of sin. You see what this is telling us about Jesus' true identity? Not only is he the God who created and fully knows you, but he's the Savior who's able to rescue us. He knows us. He can rescue us. This Jesus, he faced intense pressure from Satan to abandon his mission, to abandon his people, but he didn't fold. Hebrews 4 tells us he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, without giving in. And then, in this ultimate display of love, he surrendered himself to die as payment, atonement for the sins he did not commit. For, for every shameful word and act and thought, for every betrayal committed by everyone who will believe in him and, and receive the forgiveness that he's won for you when he died instead of you. That's the identity of Jesus. He's the God who knows you better than you know yourself. He's the Savior who can save you when you cannot save yourself. He's the Savior who will give his life to rescue and have you. That's the identity of Jesus. But what does this scene reveal about his heart? What, what does it tell us about the heart of Jesus? Look, look at verse 21 of John 13. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. We have to ask, what was troubling Jesus? And you might quickly say, because we've already seen this in the past, he's troubled because he knows that his hour has come. He knows what's going to happen to him in the, in the very near future. But Jesus is big enough and complex enough to be thinking more than one thing. In fact, I think it's safe to say that he is not just troubled, in turmoil, distressed because of his own immediate future, but because of Judas's eternal future. He had known this man for three years. Do you think that over those three years he was pretending to like Jesus? I mean, do you think Ju Jesus was pretending to like Judas? 
Do you think Jesus was, was feigning affection? Acting like he cared about Judas? No, there was a love that Jesus had for Judas. When he washed his feet, he wasn't being insincere. It was a real expression of his affection, his heart, which he knew Judas would reject. And even now, the thought of Judas walking away, defecting to darkness, it adds to the anguish that Jesus is experiencing. I think it's worth sitting with that for a moment. That in this moment of betrayal, Jesus is in anguish not only because of what will happen to him, but because of what he knows is happening to Judas as Judas walks away from him and into darkness. This is the way Jesus feels about his betrayer. If you're a Star Wars fan, how did you feel about Lando Calrissian in that moment when he betrayed Han Solo and the rest of the team? I don't mean later when you find out his rationale, but in that moment when he betrays his friends, how do you feel about Lando? Anger? Rage? Disappointment? How about if you've ever watched The, the, the Matrix? How do you feel about Cyrus? You remember Cyrus? He's the bald one. He's the one who betrayed the rest of the team for his own comfort and pleasure and desires. How did you feel about him? I'm sorry, my movie references are, are so old. One of them is, is probably 40 years old. The other one's like 20 years old, but I wish I had some newer ones. But we don't even have to look at the movies to think about how we feel about Judas's, about traitors. How do you feel about those who, for whom you have cared? who betrayed you. Have you ever been betrayed? How did you feel when it came to light? When, when the, that person that you cared for, they, they selfishly valued something else more than you. And so they deceived you. And maybe there was no apology. How does your heart instinctively respond to that? Not only does it hurt, betrayal embitters us, doesn't it? Betrayal erodes our ability to love others. It makes us less willing to care for others. And it fills us with bitterness, at the very least towards the one who betrayed us, and perhaps even bitterness towards others who we become suspicious of. But not Jesus. And it's not because Jesus is, is so calm and cool and, and over above. He is the sovereign God, but he doesn't stand coolly over this situation. No emotions, calm. No, there's pain and turmoil in his heart. Because of what this means for him, yes. But also because of what it means for the one who betrayed him, his friend. This is the heart of Jesus. We, we, we need to see it. We need to dwell on it. it. Think about it. If Jesus could weep for the city of Jerusalem when he saw them lost in their sin, how does he feel about this man with whom he lived for 
three years. I want us to compare that for just a moment to the heart of someone else who was in that room. Satan. Let's compare the heart of Jesus to the heart of Satan for just a moment. Back in verse 2, it says that Satan had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Satan somehow, we don't know the details here, we don't know how this happens, but, but he presented this idea to Judas. And that doesn't mean that Judas wasn't responsible. He was. He had already been walking in sin long before this, deceiving, living double life. But, but Satan plants the seed in his head. And then fast forward to verse 21, where Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And when he says this, those words around that table, the disciples, they start looking at each other, which is a natural response. And Peter nods to, to John to ask Jesus, kind of motioning to him, hey, hey ask, ask Jesus who it's going to be. Who's going to betray you? John was closer to Jesus. He was, he was close enough to be able to recline on Jesus. And so Peter kind of motions to him to ask. Maybe Peter was slow to speak up, too, because he had already put his foot in his mouth. I mean, it, Earlier, he had probably regretted the things he had said just a few moments earlier. In any case, John asks who it is that will betray, and Jesus tells him, it's the one to whom I give this piece of bread after I dip it. And then he dips the bread, and he gives it to Judas. And in verse 27, then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said, what you are going to do do quickly. And it's not clear here. The scholars uh, uh, debate, was Jesus talking to Judas here when he says, whatever you're going to do, do it quickly? Or was he talking to Satan? In any case, what's going on here is, is the curtain is being drawn back so that we can see the spiritual realities that were taking place in that room. We're often blind to this, We're blind to the spiritual dynamics that are at play in our lives. Jesus tells us, John tells us, that is, Satan was present there, and Satan entered into Judas. Now, now what we want to see here is that all evening, Jesus had been serving and instructing Judas and the other 11. But what is Satan doing? Satan is tempting, using Judas. And once he's done using Judas, he will discard him. And Judas will carry that weight of shame and guilt. And instead of confessing it to God and being forgiven, he'll take his own life. Used and discarded by Satan. What's the point? The point is that Satan is not only the enemy of God, he is your enemy and mine. He doesn't care about you, but he will gladly use and discard you. And yet, Judas chooses him over Jesus. And I think that confronts us with the question, who are we choosing? Who are we choosing? And I'm not trying to be overdramatic here, 
I realize that for many of us, it's maybe, maybe it's new to you to even think about the fact that there is a real Satan and he's present. And his minions as well. Tempting, urging, stumbling. But the fact is that we are constantly faced with choices. Choices about who to believe. Will we believe what the Lord has told us? Or, what we will, be, or will we believe the lies? Lies from Satan. And I don't mean lies necessarily that you're hearing verbally from Satan. Lies that align with what Satan says and does. Constantly we're being faced with a choice of what we will value. Constantly we're faced with choices about how we will respond to the circumstances around us. How we will respond to the people we live with. To our children. To our spouse. How are we going to respond in this moment? Will we respond in a way that's shaped by what the Lord has told us? Promised to us? how he's instructed us, or will we respond in ways that align with the desires of our enemy? What will we believe about ourselves? Constantly faced with the choice, will we believe what God has said about us? Or what will we believe what our enemy says about us? Look, we, we need to be realistic about how the enemy sees us. He will tempt you. And then, when you fall into that temptation, what will he do? He will shame you for falling into temptation. And then he will keep lying to you, saying there's no forgiveness. You can't go back. You can't go back to God after you've done this. And in those moments, we need to remember the heart of Christ. You see, we need to be realistic about how the enemy sees you, but we need to remember constantly the heart of Christ towards you. He knows you fully, and he will have you back. He will forgive. He will cover the shame and and erase the guilt. He will take you back. If you'll turn away from darkness and go back to him. He wasn't surprised by your fall. He wasn't surprised by the sins you committed this week. Although you may have been surprised. You know, it's interesting. We, when we love someone, when we initially begin a relationship with someone, and we might even use the word, we we fell in love. We we begin to love someone, but then over time we learn more about them. And, And the more we learn about them, sometimes the more we love them. But have you ever had the experience where you really like someone, but the more you get to know them, the more you learn about them, the more you start to lose respect for them. The more you have your affection starts to lessen. You're disappointed in them. In fact, the more you get to know them, you might find out that they were not who they presented themselves to be. They may even betray you. And because you're disappointed, now you want out of that relationship. That never happens with Christ because he goes into our into relationship with us, not to learn more about us and see if this is going to stick. He goes into relationship with us knowing fully what he's getting into. And the relationship he initiates with us 
is a covenant bond that cannot be broken. That's the bond that exists between Christ and everyone who has believed in him. You know, when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, I said, you know, John asks, who's it going to be? And if you were reading very closely, you might have said, hey, how do you know it was John who said that? It doesn't say John asked that. It says it's the disciple whom Jesus loved who asked. Well, that's how John refers to himself. It's the first time he uses that phrase here, but he uses it again later in this book. And what he means by that, when he says, I'm the, I'm the, when he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, he's not saying I'm the only one who Jesus loved. Jesus loved all his disciples to the very end. Remember? Chapter 13, verse 1. So John's not bragging here. He's not saying I was special amongst these 12, but he is letting us know something about himself. He's letting us know something about his identity. He's saying, I'm the one that Jesus loved. And that teaches us something really, really important. Christ's heart towards you must define you. If you have believed in him, then you are his disciple and you are the disciple whom Jesus loves. John's not the only one. That is Christ's heart towards you and it defines you. That is who you are. You are the disciple whom Jesus loved. Mo, you're the disciple whom Jesus loved. Amanda, you are the disciple whom Jesus loved loves. Mark, Cynthia, the disciples whom Jesus loves. He loved you. And when he loved you, it was with an everlasting love. John could have identified himself in other ways. He could have identified himself in terms of his accomplishments. I'm the one who did this, or I'm the one who did that, but he doesn't do that. He could have even identified himself in terms of his sins. He had plenty of them. He could have said, I'm, I'm, I'm the, the, the disciple who argued about who was greatest. Or I'm the disciple who, who, who doubted that Jesus could feed that crowd. Those things were true about him, but he identifies himself as the one whom Jesus loved. That's what defines him. And so, Christian, if you have believed in Jesus, how about you? How do you identify yourself? How do you define yourself? What is true about you does not necessarily define you, but here's what does define you. You are the one whom Jesus loved. The scene teaches us about the identity of Jesus and the heart of Jesus. We, we need to respond to this, don't we? Th these aren't things that we just look at and we walk away from unchanged. We can't. We must respond. So if you have never believed in Jesus, if you've never experienced his love, I would love the chance to talk with you. And many others on this call would too. Maybe there's someone you know here in this service who you'd feel comfortable speaking with. But for now, would you consider this? You are fully known by him. Your hurts, your dreams, and your sins. 
all the things that you've carefully hidden away and continue to hide away, he knows. He's not shocked. And he's not disgusted. Rather than walk away from you, he welcomes you. You can be forgiven, healed, and cared for forever by him. The penalty he paid on the cross proves how far he will go to make you his. And, and if you walk towards him in belief, you are walking into the light. If you have believed in Jesus, what do you do when you see your sin and it shocks you? Or maybe it doesn't shock you, you're just disappointed because you feel like, again, the same tendencies, the same behavior, the same thoughts, the same anxieties. It's not just your sin you're dealing with. Maybe it's just fears and anxieties. You're seeing them again and you're ashamed of it. Or maybe it is sin that you're looking at in your life. How do you respond to it? Do you, do you hide it? That, that's really just walking further into darkness. It, that's just really walking away from Christ. He knows whom he has chosen. He saw that sin coming. He saw these repeated patterns happening. And he still loved you. And he calls you to turn away. That's what repentance is, to, to return, to turn back from those sins and to come back to him. If you've believed in him, you are the disciple that Jesus loved. So come back in. Return. And when you do that, he will welcome you. Not begrudgingly. Not, not with, a, with, with a scowl on his face. Rolling his eyes, oh, here he comes back again. No, he'll receive you with open arms. I remember hearing a preacher named Jared Wilson, who some of you know, share these words. He said, when we come back to Christ, after we've walked away and we've fallen into sin and we've been living in darkness, we come back to him. We don't find a savior who looks at us and says, ah, this guy, this guy again. No, we come back to a savior who looks at us and says, this guy, I've been waiting for you. Nothing but love for you. I'm willing to wash you clean and restore the joy that you can have when you come back to me. This is the heart of Christ towards those whom he's loved, who love him. And he extends that invitation to come back. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we marvel, we're amazed by who you are and what you've done. And what you continue to do, Lord, your patience, your long-suffering, your willingness to forgive again and again and again, it, it amazes us and it leaves us desiring to know more of you, 
and to worship you. And so as we, as we sing to you now, as we worship you, we ask that you would, even through the words that we're singing, that you would plant deep in our hearts an immovable, unshakable, deeply rooted belief that you are the God who knows us, who rescues us, and who loves us with an everlasting love. It's in your name we pray. Amen.